Well, good morning, Rocky Peak. Great to see you. My name's Michael, and I'm one of the pastors here at Rocky Peak. If you're here at the top, we did some baby dedications. I want to welcome you. Uh, glad you can be with us both here in our worship center, also in our Ridge venue. But we're going to go to our time of teaching today, uh, and so looking forward to that. So inside your program is a green and white message note sheet. Encourage you to take that out. And if you all are ready to go, I'm ready to jump in. You guys ready to go? Okay, let's pray. God, we're just excited to be here and to be pursuing you as a church in this next step of our journey. And we're, uh, we're excited to be here under your leadership and with the presence of your spirit because we know that he and he alone is the one who opens our eyes to see wonderful things in your word as, as, the law, as your word says. And so, Lord, we just come today hungry. We come today, we want to be spoken to. We're asking you to speak. And we just pray that you'd be preparing our hearts to respond, to listen, and to follow. We pray this in your name. Amen. It's a summer day, and the place is Paris, and it's burning hot. The, the thermometer is well over 100 degrees, very humid, and the athletes have been struggling for the last couple weeks to compete in this heat. Today is the day everyone's been waiting for. It's the event that's on everyone's mind. He's been preparing for this event for years. He has traveled across the ocean with his colleagues. He's been preparing for this race, and now the day has come. The stands are packed. Um, there's electricity in the air. Um, everyone's on their feet, including the dignitaries. Um, every eye is on him. In the distance, he can hear the bands playing outside the stadium, songs from his nation, and as he approaches the starting line, he's standing there with world-class athletes from around the globe. And the fact is, for people in the stands, most of them don't expect him to do well in this race. This is really not his main event, but because of the controversy, because of the publicity the last couple weeks, because of the stand that he's taken, every eye's on him to see how he'll do. And now's the moment they've been waiting for. In less than a minute, once the gun sounds, they'll have the answer to the questions. The reporters are crowding around the track. The athletes move the starting line, take their positions, and the gun sounds. Well, today, <laughs> we are continuing our journey that we've been on this series called The Gospel. And for those of you who are new, welcome to you. Um, this is a series that's based on a letter from one of the leaders of the early movement of Jesus. We call him Paul or the Apostle Paul. And he's writing a letter to a group of Jesus followers that he actually led many of these people to the Lord about 10 or 12 years before. They're 850 miles away. They're in a Roman garrison, important Roman garrison town that's in modern day uh, modern-day Greece called Philippi. And so uh, the reason we're calling this series The Gospel is because uh, in this letter, more than any of his other letters, Paul, the Apostle Paul uses the word gospel more per page, more per paragraph than any other of his letters. And yet, as we've seen, his goal in this, in this, um, this letter is not simply to help these Philippians understand kind of the heart, the content of the gospel, um, which as we've seen is so much bigger and brighter and bolder, so much deeper, wider, richer, fuller than we've often imagined. 
But his goal is to help them to understand what it looks like to live out the gospel, what it means to be a follower of Jesus as they live in this Roman garrison, uh, Roman city there in Greece. And so last week, if you were here, we broke into a new section of the letter where the Apostle Paul uh, begins to share with them and remind them of two different paradigms uh, of how a relationship with God works, two different, radically different approaches to how we approach a relationship with God. And they're sort of based on his personal life experience, his personal spiritual journey. And so last week, we looked at the, the first paradigm we, we, he talked to us about that we called it the paradigm of religion. And the paradigm of religion, we pursue a relationship with God based on our performance, our religious, moral, ethical performance. Uh, and then he compared it and contrasted it with the, what, I, what we call the paradigm of relationship, where we approach a relationship with God not based on our performance, but on the performance of the Messiah for us, his life, his death, and resurrection. And so today he's going to continue to talk to us about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, building on his personal life experience in, and using his life as a model for us to follow. And so if you have your Bibles, if you have your apps, go ahead and open up and turn on to uh, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 1. There in your note sheet you have a section called The Gospel, The Passionate Pursuit. So we're going to pick it up at chapter 3, verse 10, kind of near where we ended last week. And Paul says, he starts off, I want to know Christ. Now, what does Christ mean? <laughs> Try it again. What does Christ mean? Messiah. Good, Messiah. Yeah, Christ is, comes from the Greek Christos, which is the equivalent of the Hebrew Mashiach, which means uh, un, uh, means Messiah, or someone said anointed one, but it's the, the kind of the, speaking of the king that would come. And so uh, it's one of Paul's favorite titles for Jesus, uh, King Jesus or Messiah Jesus. So he says that now that he's entered into this new relationship with God, not based on his performance, but based on the performance of the Messiah, he says that his passion in life is to know Messiah. And this word in Greek, when it says to know, he's not talking about simply a cerebral, mental, doctrinal, theological knowledge of Messiah, which would include all that, but he's talking about a deep, firsthand, personal, heart-to-heart relationship with the Messiah. It reminds me, in Hebrew, you have the word yada, which means to know. It's got a wide semantic range, but if you've uh, ever read like the King James Bible, it'll say, so Adam knew his wife, and that doesn't mean they just met, right? They're going to have a baby as a result of that knowledge. So it's a very intimate kind of knowledge. Um, and so in a similar way, epigonosco in the Greek, to, to know, he says to know, it's not just a cerebral, it's a no, no Messiah in a deep and personal way. So he says, so since I've come into this new relationship, this is my passion in life. It's my top priority to know Messiah. And he says, and goes on, and he says, yes, what that involves is I want to know the power of his resurrection. So I, I don't want to just know him, but I want to experience um, the power of his resurrection, his transforming power in my life. And so we talked about this with baptism last week. Baptism represents we come to Jesus, we die to our old life, we rise with him through the power of his spirit. So Paul says, I want to know that resurrecting, transforming power so I become like Jesus. And he says, then he moves on, and he says, but I also want to know the participation in his sufferings. 
Now we're gonna talk about this later, but this word participation is a very important word. It's one we talked about a lot early in this series, but we haven't talked a long time, but it's very important. It's the word koinonia. Do you remember that word, koinonia? So koinonia speaks of a deep sharing, a communion, a fellowship, uh, think of like the, in the Lord of the Rings, the fellowship of the ring, this close relationship. So as followers of Jesus, we all share the Holy Spirit and leads to this deep organic sharing in our life. And so here he says, I don't want to just know the power of the resurrection. I want to have this fellowship, this communion with Jesus that is only uh, participated by his sharing his sufferings. And so we'll come back and talk to that later. But for now, notice that if you want to know the power, you have to share the sufferings. There's this connection. All right, so then he goes on, and he says, my goal is to become like him in his death, and so somehow attain to the resurrection of the dead. And so, of course, this takes us to, to the gospel, that the story of the gospel is that you know, we, we're the, the rebel race, that so we started with a creation, we rebelled against God, and God promised that one day from the line of David, a great king would come who would rescue and restore all of creation, and that includes our resurrection. So our new bodies are like Jesus' body. And so uh, Paul says that I'm, I'm coming, I'm, I've gone to know Jesus. I want to run hard after him. It's my top priority. I want to experience this full story, be part of the new creation that's coming. And then he says in verse 12, he says, not that I've obtained all this or I've already arrived at my goal. In the Greek, it literally says, not that I've become perfect. And so, um, you know, throughout church history, there have always been those that have taught that if you really listen and follow Jesus enough, you can come to a place of perfection. And of course, that's not biblically true. We'll never come to a place of perfection. And there's some scholars that believe that there was some teaching like that going on in Philippi, and that's why Paul's bringing this up. We don't really know that. But Paul's very clear that, hey, I've not arrived yet. I'm running hard after Jesus, but I've not yet arrived. He says, but... He says, I press on to take hold of that for which Messiah or King Jesus took hold of me. And so the, the idea is that when Jesus called you to follow him, he, he took hold of you for a reason. He's got a purpose for your life. And Paul says, my top priority is not just knowing him, but carrying out his purpose for my life. And he says, brothers and sisters, verse 13, I do not consider myself to have yet taken hold of it. I have not arrived but this one thing I do, top priority, I forget what, what is behind, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I strain forward towards what's ahead. So what he's doing here, he's using an athletic metaphor. Like in the ancient world, the games were big, like the Olympic games were big, and Paul often uses examples from them in terms of talking about how to follow Jesus. And so the, the image here is picture uh, like a runner in the games. They're coming around the final turn. They're heading down the track. They're forgetting everyone that's behind them. They're just totally focused in on the goal, the finish line, and they're running full speed. He says, that's how I'm approaching my, uh, my walk with Jesus, my relationship with, with God. And he said, so I press on toward the goal to win the prize, like the, uh, in our world, it'd be like the gold medal, verse 14, uh, for which God has called me heavenward. Okay? And he says, now, here's what, and then it's really interesting, he said, all of us then who are mature, and in the Greek, the word is perfect. So he said, you, that, he said I'm not perfect, but though we can't be perfect, we can have sort of a perfect approach. And he said, so all of us who are mature or perfect um, should take such a view of things. What view of things? We should embrace a new paradigm 
that our relationship with God's not based on our performance, but on the performance of the Messiah. And now that we're in that relationship, we should be making our top priority. We want to know Messiah. We want to experience his transforming power. We want to become like him in his death so we can be a part of the resurrection that's coming. And we're going to run this race so that we carry out every plan he has for our life like an athlete streaming towards the finish line. All right? So he says that's the way we should approach it. And he said, and if, if on some point you think differently, you know, there's something that you're not quite up to speed on, I love this. That too, God will make clear to you. So it's kind of like, you know, let's get at the big things right. And uh, if there's some you know, smaller things, God will show you that. Uh, I love that. Um, remember back in chapter one, Paul said that he who began a good work in you, he'll, he'll carry it out. And Paul's confident in that. So let's, just, let's stay focused on these important things. And you know, God will show you the rest of it. And then he says, uh, only let us live up to what we've already attained. Let's uh, not go backwards. And so a beautiful passage where Paul says, you know, I've come in this new relationship with Jesus. I've embraced this new paradigm. And so my new goal now is to know Messiah in a deep and personal way, experience his transforming power in my life, share with him in his sufferings, rise with him in the new creation that's coming. And I'm running hard to carry out everything that he's chosen me to finish in my life. It's a beautiful passage, right? Now, what I want to do as we unpack it together, though, is I want to ask four important, really kind of penetrating, challenging questions about our lives as we say, okay, so, so what's the message here? What does it look like to live a life worthy of the gospel? What does it look like to live out the gospel, not just to believe the gospel, to live out the gospel? And so four questions based on this passage that will help us tease it out, kind of apply it to our lives. So there on your, on your note sheet, you have a section called The Passionate Pursuit, four key questions. So the first question is this, what's your priority? So we've seen what Paul's priority is. When we get to 3.13, he says, but this one thing I do, All right? He says, so now that I've come into relationship with the Messiah, this one thing I do, I'm running hard to know him, to experience him, be transformed, and to carry out his plan for my life. This is my top priority. This is my passion. And so the question is, in your life, as you sit here today, you reflect, what is your top priority in life? Now, we all have a lot of priorities, don't we? We have work priorities, we've got family priorities, we've got financial priorities, we have ministry priorities, we've got health priorities, a lot of priorities. But the question is, what is the one priority that rules the rest in your life? So we're to go out, we're going to have lunch together, we had some time, we just want to unpack this. Okay, so what is it in your life that would be your top priority? That's what I want to reflect on for a few minutes. And to get at this, I want to go back in Philippians uh, earlier in the chapter, because uh, Paul's, you know, this, this, this statement in 3.13, this one, this one thing, it's building on several statements. And I want to go back to chapter 3, verse 7, kind of dip into where we were last week, to build on this. And so we understand what he means when he says, this is my one thing. So uh, if you look at your Bibles there, 3-7, he says, um, remember in, in the first six verses, he's kind of laid out this paradigm of religion. 
how he used to live his life, and he's talked about all the thing, all the credits he's racked up, so to speak. You know, being a Jew, circumcised, eighth day, tribe of Benjamin, Pharisee, person, all these performance things. But then he, he met Jesus, and that all changed. He realized that the relationship with God is not based on performance, it's based on relationship with Messiah. And so in verse 7, he says, So whatever were gains to me, I now consider a loss for the sake of Messiah. And he says, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Messiah, Jesus, my Lord. So Caesar's not my Lord, Jesus is my Lord, for whose sake uh, I've lost all things. Now I want us to reflect on that for a second because sometimes Apostle Paul can be kind of distant, feature, uh, distant character in our lives and we can not seem as a real person, but I want you to think uh, about Paul's life and all he'd lost for Messiah. So if you're here last week, we talked about this, how, how Paul, growing up, was a rising star in Judaism. A rising star in the place of power of Judaism in Jerusalem. In fact, I was thinking about this week, it'd be like, you know, often in a political party, you'll see a rising star, that they're not yet the star, but they're a rising star. Uh, and everyone's going like, oh, like look at this person, they're gonna make impact, right? So I was thinking, for example, back in 2004, I don't know if you remember this, but when Barack Obama kind of like, like kind of flamed onto the national scene, and the way it happened was the 2004 Democratic National Convention, and this senator from uh, Illinois that most of us had never heard of, he gives this amazing speech, and everyone starts singing his praises, and he's like, he is suddenly like, we don't know where this guy is going, but he may be presidential. Now, it's going to be four more years before he ran in, in one, but he was this rising star. And that's sort of the Apostle Paul. In fact, uh, in Galatians, uh, which is a letter written earlier than Philippians, one of his earliest letters, Paul looks back on his life, and this is how he describes that period of life before he met Messiah. He says there in your note sheet, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age. He was a rising star, and so when, when Paul would walk the streets of Jerusalem, people knew his name. People knew he had studied under Gamaliel, the top. It'd be like, that's, that's the Harvard grad right there, you know? Like that, like he, he, wherever he would go, there'd be respect, there would be honor, there would be position, prestige, popularity. Uh, he's going some places. When this movement of Jesus breaks out and they need to task someone with his top priority of stomping that out, who does the high priest, remember, very political figure, who's a high priest? They choose Paul. They choose Saul. So, uh, so Paul is a man with, with prestige, with power, with popularity, probably possessions. He's on his way. And when he meets Messiah, that all goes out the window. that he goes from being persecutor, the golden boy, to persecuted, Shaul, right? And for the rest of his life, he's gonna spend his life on the run, in prison, cold, uh, often hungry, um, in prison, beaten, stoned, um, Almost actually, when he's writing this, he's in prison not knowing if he's going to be really... This, Paul exchanged the life of privilege for the life of, persecute, of the persecuted. And yet, 
Look what he says as he looks at this trade that he's made in verse 8. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing value, the worth, of knowing Messiah Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, and I consider them garbage. Remember trash, remember scubula, trash or worse. I consider them garbage that I may gain Messiah and be found in him. It, this reminds, I was thinking this week, it reminds me of a short story Jesus once told. If you're new at this Christianity thing, Jesus' short stories, we call them parables. So he tells a parable about what it's like for a person come, becoming a follower of Jesus, or in Jesus' words, to become uh, part of the kingdom of heaven. That's the way Jesus put it. Kingdom of the heavens. Not, not go to heaven, but the kingdom that comes from the heavens. And so he says, once upon a time, there was a man, and he's walking through a field. And he trips, and he looks down to see what he trips on, and he tripped on something sticking up, and he begins to dig, what is that thing? And he turns out it's buried treasure. Now, this would often happen in the ancient world when enemies would come, when you, you know, don't have place, you don't have vaults, you'd go out and you'd dig a hole in your property, and you, you bury stuff so that when you're, the enemy comes, they can't find it, right? But of course, maybe you're killed, maybe you're captured, maybe you're... You, you know, so it's a long time later. Someone comes and trips and they find your treasure. And so he says, this guy is going along. And he trips and he's digging. He's like, oh my gosh, this is a gold mine. And he says, so he goes back home. He like covers it back up. He goes back home and he sells, he liquidates all assets. Right? He liquidates his 401k. He sells the house. He sells his motorcycle. Uh, he... he he liquidates everything, and then he goes and makes an offer on the property, and he buys the property, and once his name is on that deed, he goes out and parties, because it was the best deal of his life, the surpassing worth. And this is Paul's, this is Paul's story. This is how he describes, and so, so, so now my top priority in life is to know Messiah. And so the question I have for you is, what is your top priority? What is the driving passion of your life? What is more important? Let me ask it this way. What is it that you would trade everything in your life to keep? You'd give up everything you have in order to keep this. And what Paul is telling us is if it's anything less than knowing Messiah, you haven't yet seen Messiah. Uh, and in a sense, we go to the heart of the gospel because the gospel is this big picture story. But if you remember back at creation, we were created as a race. We we're created to know God. We were created to be in relationship with God. We were created to be like God. Let's put it this way. We were created to be like God in his image. We were created to be in relationship with God. And we were created to rule over creation with God. And what Paul is saying is that the heart of a human story is relationship. That relationship, and particularly relationship with the creator, is more valuable than anything else we can acquire or attain. 
It is more valuable than power. It's more valuable than prestige. It's more valuable than position. It's more valuable than possession. It is more valuable. In fact, if for those who have eyes to see, it is not even worth comparison. Everything else is scubula. Crap. Compared to knowing Messiah. So the question would be, for your life, for my life, so, so what is the one top priority for which you would sell everything else? And Paul would say, if it's not knowing the Messiah, then you're missing the boat. Right? Number two. The second one is very similar to the first one. It kind of comes out a little different way. They, they go together. But the second question goes like this. How's your passion? One of the things I love about the Apostle Paul is his passion, his passion for God, his passion for people. Um, and you see that in this passage in, in chapter 3 and verse 13, where he says, um, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet taken hold of it, but there's one thing I do. And then he uses this illustration from track and field, and he says, forgetting what's behind, and I'm straining towards on, I press on the goal to win the prize, this picture of an athlete running down the final straightaway. And I, as I was working on this message, the image that came to mind is the story that we started the day with. So this, the story we started the day with was the story of this man that he's, uh, uh, all eyes are on him. It's super hot day. Stadiums are packed. Everyone's on their feet waiting for this moment. And so uh, the place is Paris. I think I mentioned that. The year is 1924. The athlete is Eric Liddell. So some of you will remember that name from the movie Chariots of Fire. And so I don't know if you remember this story or have seen the movie, but, but here's how it goes, is that Eric Liddell is a passionate Christ follower. In fact, after he's going to eventually become a missionary to China and give his life for Jesus in China, an amazing guy, but uh, he was also really fast. And, uh, and so Remember that line in the movie where he's having an argument to sit with his sister kind of about when he goes to China and he, and she's, he says, you know, uh, you know I, I want to be a missionary. Yes, I'm going to go to missionary, but God has also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. You remember that? And so, and so he's, he's there. He's been training forever for this. He comes in 1924. His event, his key event is the 100-meter dash. Uh, and so that's what he's, he's best at. And he's one of the world favorites to win the event. But when he gets to Paris, he finds out that they've scheduled the final heat, not the final race, but the final heat to qualify uh, on, the, on a Sunday. And as a follower of Jesus in the 1920s, a very conservative era, he felt like this was a violation of the Lord's day. And so because of his passion for Jesus, uh, he, he chose that he would give up the dream of winning the gold in order to be True. Of course, it's very controversial and had the whole attention of the world. Like, this is crazy, someone giving up that dream. And so then a friend of his came and said, hey, how about if I give you my spot to run in the 400 meters so at least you get to run in the final of a race. And so he, he's not a 400 meter guy. In fact, he's mediocre at it. He's never done very well, but it's the Olympics and it's a great opportunity. And that's why on this particular day, sweltering heat, over 100 degrees, 
All eyes are on him because of the controversy, because of the publicity. And so as he goes to the line, I mean, every eye's on him. The gun sounds, and if you've seen the movie, he's got an inside track, inside lane, but as he's coming around the first turn, he's bumped and he falls. Goat falls hard to the track. Now, in the 400 meter, this is, you cannot recover from this. This whole race is going to be over in less than a minute. There's no way, but if you've seen the movie, he pops up and by the way, truth in advertising, this didn't really happen. <laughs> Just go with me. It happened, but a year later in a different race. But the rest I'm going to tell you did happen. <laughs> I had to come clean. I didn't tell the first two services. But, you know. <laughs> Just kind of repenting. Um, no. No, I just said this is the movie, and that's the truth. It was the movie. But anyway, so he, he falls, you know, he falls hard. He gets up. Everyone's like gasping, right? Because there's no way that he can, uh, he can win now. But against all odds, he takes off. He runs like the wind. He begins to catch up with the pack. He begins to pass the pack. And as he comes down the final straightaway, I don't know if you remember this scene, if you've seen the movie, but he is running his really odd running style. He's like flailing his arms, running like the wind. His hair is back. His head is back. And right at the line, he beats the last competitor and wins at the, you know, right at the very end and then collapses on the ground. And true story now, true story, he not only won that race, he set a new world record in an event he had never done well in, a record that would last for 12 years. And what I want you to catch, if, you, if you've seen that movie, or at least just from my description, you picture him coming down the race, coming down that final straightaway. He is not looking behind him. He is not looking back to what happened that, that fall. All, every ounce of his attention is focused on the finish line. And Paul says, as followers of Jesus, that's the way we run. That's the way we roll. And so the question then for us then is, well, how's your passion? What is it in life that has captured your passion? What is your highest passion in life? What drives you? And what Paul would say, well, if it's anything other than knowing, loving, and pleasing Messiah, we've gotten bumped and have fallen on the track. We, we have lost our way. Now, one of the things I love about this passage is that Paul is very clear that this is not just, he, that he's sharing his story and his approach, not simply to give us his story, but to be a model for our story. And this is a big theme we'll see in the next couple weeks in Philippians, that, that Paul is often telling us his story to be a model for our story. And I love this because, you know, often when we, we read the Apostle Paul, I don't know about you, but I think we're always tempted to say, yeah, but that's Paul. He's supposed to be crazy, right? Like, he's crazy. It's like, that's awesome for him. In fact, often we look at people like me, like, like pastors, like, well, Pastor Michael, Pastor, yeah, they're, they're supposed to be passionate. I mean, we pay them to be passionate. My, you know, it's like, that's their job. I mean, even if they're not passionate, they should look like it, you know? Um, <laughs> 
That's kind of what their, their deal is. And so often we look at that, we look at that as like, well, there are leaders and then there's us, all right? And what I want you to catch is you and I have different callings. We do not have different passions. As members of the body of Christ, we have different callings. I've been called to be a leader, to speak for Jesus, to challenge. That's my calling. That may not be your calling, but he has not called us to different passions. We're all sons and daughters of the king. We're all the same. You know, many of you have come to Rocky Peak and over the years, so many of you have said to me, well, it's so weird when you came out the very first time and you said, I'm Michael, I'm one of the pastors. You said, it's really weird, I kept waiting for the real pastor to come out. <laughs> and then I realized, like, you were the real pastor. <laughs> you know, every month we have next step desserts in our house. We don't do them here on campus. We have next step desserts in our house. This is very intentional. I want to do all I can to tear down the distance to remove the pedestal between leaders and followers. We are all followers, right? So my job is to blow the bugle, to sound the trumpet. It's all our job to run with passion. You and I were created to run on passion. As human beings, God has not called us to be bored. He didn't create us to be bored. If we're bored, something is wrong. He created us for passion. And what Paul is saying is there are many different things you can become passionate in life. He was passionate. He was passionate about the law. He was passionate about rising in Judaism. He was passionate about persecution. He was passionate about his position and his prestige. But then he realized that that's not what he was created for. He was created for a deeper passion. And that deepest passion is this relationship with the Messiah that we were created for. And so what he says, I love what he says in 3.15, just to show you I'm not making this up. (laughs) And 3.15, get your Bibles out. You're gonna miss this if you don't, okay? What are the first three words in verse 15? Let's say it together. All of us, okay, not some of us, not leaders, not missionaries, uh, not ministry leaders, not pastors, not authors, all of us then who are mature or perfect should take such a view of things. What view? This relationship, paradigm of relationship, this priority to know Messiah, this passion to run hard after him is our top priority. He says, all of us, this is what it looks like to be a grown-up Jesus follower, right? So if you want to stay a baby Christian your whole life, you, do, you can do that. If you want to wear like spiritual diapers for the next 30 years and have us wipe your bottom for you, cleaning up after your messes, We can do that. If you want to stay like a runt forever, you can, but I want you to catch this. If you choose not to grow, that is your choice. That is not his choice. 
His choice when he put his love on you and he said, I want this person, I'm going to call this person. When he chose you, he chose you to be amazing. He chose you to be in his image, to reflect to the world who he is. He chose you to be Jesus to the world. He chose you to be transformed, to experience his life-giving power of his resurrection. He chose you to be great. Now, you can choose to be like the church of Corinth. Hey, I, I could not speak to you as mature men, but as babes in Christ, you still are full of envy and jealousy. I have to speak, you're acting like mere men. Yes, we can choose that. But mark this down, that if you choose it, it is not his choice for you. He chose you for something else. And he chose you to live a life of passion. And he wants you to be filled with that passion. You say, well, how do I get that passion if I don't have that passion? Can I tell you something? That passion is a work and a gift of the Holy Spirit. That none of us can create passion for God just by praying or just by reading our Bible or fat. No, no. Passion is a work of the Holy Spirit. But can I tell you something? It comes to those who say, Jesus, in all honesty, you're not my top passion. Here's what I'm most passionate about. And this is hard for me, but I'm, I'm gonna trust you that if you can change me from the inside out and make yourself my top passion, I give you permission. And that's where the journey starts. So they say, hey, there's all the things I'm running for. And, and when we do that, we begin to grow and we begin to change it's his followers of Jesus. He created us for something more that our highest passion is binging on, net, on Netflix reruns that we've seen 18 times. <laughs> if that's the most exciting thing in your life, you're missing it. You were created for something great. Amen? All right, number three. The third question I have, and this one's going to take a little bit more uh, a little bit more study, a little bit more reflection. Um, I've actually been reflecting on this for the last two months. This has really been challenging and just praying over this, trying to understand this more. But uh, the question goes like this, are you willing to share his sufferings? Now this is really interesting because in verse 10, Paul says, I want to know Messiah. And then he says, I want to know the power of his resurrection. And when he says that, I'm all in. Like, I want to know the power of Jesus to transform me. I want to love people more. I, I want to be more like him. I want to be more courageous. Uh, I, I want to be more pure. I want to be more passionate. I want to be more gentle and compassionate. I want to be transformed. I want to experience power over sin. I want to experience the life-giving power of the resurrection. I'm a hundred percent in. But as he goes on, he says, and I want to know the, the, uh, the, uh, the participation or the koinonia of his sufferings. I'm like, uh, I'm not so sure. Uh, I like that power part. I'm not so sure about this suffering part. And so I've really reflected on that the last two months. So it helped me to understand that. And it's been really kind of a profound journey. And, um, 
I think to understand it, we need to look at one other passage in Philippians. And it's there in your note sheet. And this is a key passage. Remember, this was a passage we went to time and time again over the first couple, uh, the couple months of series where it's kind of a topical theme, thematic paragraph for the whole letter. And remember, Paul says, whatever happens, so remember, he's in prison. He doesn't know if he's gonna be executed or released or retained. He said, whatever happens to me, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. You remember that phrase? We've talked about a lot. Worthy of the gospel. And he said, then I'll know that you stand firm in one spirit. So we talked about that. There's, Paul had two primary concerns at the start of this letter. One was unity, and the other was courage under fire. So we're gonna see that here. He said, I uh, will know you're, you're standing firm in one spirit and striving together for the faith of the gospel without being frightened, there's the courage piece, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. And then he says this, for it's been granted to you on behalf of Messiah not only to believe in him but also to suffer for him since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and you now hear I have. So he says that, that when you came to Jesus, he said it was granted to you, and it's easy to miss this in English because we don't really use the word granted very much, but in the Greek, the word is given to you. In fact, it's given by grace. It's like a grace gift. So he said, when you came to Jesus, you were given two gifts, and the first gift is to believe in Messiah. In other words, to embrace this new paradigm of relationship we talk with, the enter into a new relationship with God. He said that was given to you as a gift. When you came to Jesus, you were given two gifts. The first is to believe in Messiah. But he said the second gift was to suffer for Messiah. So under our Christmas tree, we have two gifts. One's to believe in Messiah. I want to unwrap that. The second one is to suffer for Messiah. I want to pass it on to my sister. Right? <laughs> hey, you look like you don't have as many gifts, you know? <laughs> so it raises the question, why would suffering for Messiah be a gift? And I think the answer is, it's when we stand with Messiah, for Messiah, for the sake of the world that Messiah loves, that we come to know him and what drives him in his heart in a way we never could in any other way. Let me, let me explain what I mean. Uh, some of you have suffered in a, uh, in, in a wide variety of ways, but let me give some examples. Some of you here have suffered, you've suffered the horrible abuse of sexual abuse or you've been raped. And if you've experienced that, you know the pain, the shame, the heartache, the night, everything that goes with that. It's a horrendous thing. And have you ever noticed that when you meet someone else, like if you're in a life group with someone else, maybe you share with your life group, this is part of your journey, and someone else says, that happened to me too? that there is an instant koinonia between you. Because there's no way that someone who hasn't gone through that can really understand fully what that is. And when you meet someone who has, there is a koinonia there. There's a sharing in that suffering. There's a participation in the suffering. No one can understand like they understand. 
They understand what it feels like, what the, 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 the horror, the fear, the shame, the terror, trying to get rid of it, the nightmare. Like they get it and they get you. And because they get you, there is a connection there, a shared knowledge. Some of you here are cancer survivors. And when you meet another cancer survivor, there is an instant connection. You understand. You understand the fear, the life passing before your eyes, the wondering whether you survive, the chemotherapy, the terror of that experience, the counting the calendar afterwards, how long am I cancer-free? There is a shared koinonia that comes with that suffering. Some of you have suffered the experience of combat. You've been in combat. You were in Iraq. You were in Afghanistan. And you have experienced the horror of that whole experience. And I won't even bring up, because I don't want to bring up any things that kind of trigger things, but just the horror of that experience. Maybe you've come back and you've had PTSD and you've struggled with this. And there's something that no one else can understand but someone who's gone through that. And when you meet someone who's gone through that, you feel a kinship with them. They, they understand. They, they know what that's like. I think what Paul is saying is if you want to know the Messiah, you want to know what drives the Messiah, you want to know the love the Messiah has for the world, you want to know what it was like for him to suffer for us, then you have to stand with him and for him for the sake of the world like he did. And when you stand with him and for him for the sake of the world out of love like he did, there is a bond between you that you understand the heart of Jesus and there's a level of fellowship and an experience of his resurrection power that comes into your life to enable you to do that that you can know in no other way. Now this is interesting because here in America, we haven't had to do this a lot, right? This is why someone like me can read this verse and say, yeah, I love the power part, not so big in this other part. It's like it's foreign territory for me. For Paul, he's in prison. For the Philippians, they're experiencing persecution. This is part of the world. They know this. And he says, I, yeah, I'm willing to go through, I'm willing to stand with Jesus. See, see, I want you to catch this, that Jesus did not suffer so that we won't have to. Jesus suffered so we have the power to suffer like he did for the sake of others. You see that? As he is, so are we in the world. We are the body of Christ. We are him in the world. And when you see men and women around the world standing up for him and for the sake of the world and taking the hatred for the sake of shining the light, holding out the life, light of life, this is why when you read stories of Christ followers around the world suffering for Jesus, there is always such an intimacy, such a love, such a passion, such a knowledge of Jesus because they are experiencing the resurrection power of Jesus and his heart through sharing his suffering. And so this is something that for us as Western Christ followers, 
that it's important for us to understand how this works because chances are the price tag is going to be going up. You know, this, this week um, I was reading an article about a 20-year-old, uh, just beautiful sister in Christ, uh, 20-year-old who's uh, on the uh, campus of University of California, Berkeley. And so she's a popular girl. Um, she has been elected by her student body, um, her kind of her, her uh, political party, student body political party, to be one of the 20 senators that uh, kind of rule over the um, student government at University of California, Berkeley. And so she's a passionate follower of Jesus. Uh, she's got a great attitude. And uh, so as you may know, the president, our president, um, that he recently said, hey, for, from now on, we are defining, I guess and for federal purposes, we're defining someone's gender by their biological sex at birth. Right? And so, of course, this has been very controversial um, in the LGBTQ community. And so, uh, of course, as you might imagine, there was kind of a major eruption on University of California, Berkeley, and so the student government decided to make a statement, kind of official declaration that we are against this. And so this young Christ follower, who's a senator, she said, you know, I don't think I can do that. I, I, you know, I, I don't believe it's in people's best interest to just define gender however you want. And so um, I, I love my, uh, my LGBTQ friends and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm for them. I'm not against them, but I don't think that I can vote in favor of this, that would be against my convictions and convictions of my community. And you can imagine how this went over, right? And so um, she was supposed to do a piano recital for one of her classes, and her professors canceled it for fear of protests. Um, she made a statement for three hours. She was yelled at, sworn at. Her political party that she's a part of on campus disenfranchised her, kicked her out. And, and, you know, all for just saying, hey, I don't think this is best and I can't agree with it, but, you know, great attitude, uh, just loving people and so on. And so paid a big price. In fact, in that article, they just had snippets of quotes from her, uh, but I put one there, a couple are on your note sheet. But I love what she said. A big part of me was reminded that as a Christian, I need to stand by what I said. So they're asking her to retract. She said, no, a big part of me is I need to take a stand uh, and then she said, loving the LGBTQ uh, community and accepting all of them. So she's not affirming that lifestyle, but she said, I, I love them. They're, uh, they're my friends. Uh, I just disagree that this is the best, right? So she did a great job of truth and love. And yet, uh, man, I was reading the social media uh, that underneath that article and just the vicious hatred and personal attack. And in every era, in every era, um, followers of Jesus will be attacked for different reasons. It's, it's always going to be different. But, but Paul says this is what we're called. Remember back in chapter 2, our job is to shine a light like stars in a dark world as we hold out the word of life. And so what Paul is saying is that if you want to know Messiah, you have to stand with Messiah and share in the power of his resurrection, but share in his sufferings for the sake of the world that he loves. So when we stand, we stand in love, not hatred. We stand in love. As Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
right? So we stand in love, but there's always a price to pay. And Paul says, if you want to know Messiah, you have to be able to stand with him and for him and sharing uh, the suffering that comes with him. And in that, you will know him in new ways. So are you willing to share in his suffering? There in your note sheet, Paul says in Romans 8, he says, if we're children, if we're children of God, then we're heirs. And there's this whole new creation that's coming. We will inherit that. Heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we share, may share in his glory. If you're a follower of Jesus, it means to be Jesus to the world. And that by definition will revolve suffering. But in the suffering, we'll experience the power of the resurrection and understand his heart as we stand with him and for him for the sake of the world. Now, number four. The fourth question is, are you looking backward or forward? Paul says in 3.13, he says, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself has yet taken hold of it, or not perfect, but one thing I do, top priority, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what's ahead. So what Paul is saying is if we are going to live a life worthy of the gospel, that we have to learn to forget what is behind. Now, let me define what I mean by forget what is behind. By forget, I do not mean pretend it never happened. I do not mean, he does not mean um, like denial. Uh, He does not mean not taking responsibility for things we've done in our past. And he doesn't mean that we're not open and honest and, and kind of facing our fears and the things that have wounded us in the past that we definitely need to bring out into the light so we can be healed. We'll be talking about that in our next series, right? What he's talking about is that there are things in our past that can tend to slow us down. And he says that you need to let go of the past. Now listen, for the Apostle Paul, there were things in his past that were good, bad, and ugly, right? So the good, ever since he came to Jesus and Jesus turned his life around, he's made an amazing impact for the kingdom. That's the good. The bad, his early years when he's following the false paradigm, the wrong paradigm. But then think of the ugly. I think often we don't spend enough time thinking about this, but Paul had lived a brutal life. Remember we saw last week that when when the movement of Jesus started, started out, we need to visualize this. He's going house to house looking for followers of the way. He's pulling people out. Think of Nazi Germany. Looking for Jews. Have that image. Paul's going house to house pulling out followers of the way. And then he says that he would not only arrest them, he would beat them. Physically beat them. uh, Very likely whip them in order to get them to blaspheme the name of Jesus. And then he would vote for their execution. Remember, Paul was the one standing there when Stephen was stoned to death, that brutal killing. He was the one holding the coats so he could throw harder. This is Paul's... Now, I want you to imagine this. You've come to Jesus. You're the apostle Paul. Do you think you might have some sleepless nights? Do you think you ever might have... Some, some gruesome scenes in your mind that would fill you with regrets? Paul would later describe himself as the worst of all sinners. And we often see this as hyperbole or humility. I think Paul's just telling the truth. 
Like as a Jew, he's like, what could be worse than beating, imprisoning, and executing the people of God when you think you are one? Like how would you like that on your conscience? And what Paul is saying is that if we're going to run into the future God has for us, we need to let go of our past. Like Eric Liddell, you have to forget the fall. And you have to run for all your worth in your future. So let's talk about the two sides of that. For some of us here, the greatest weight that slows us down is our past. For some of you here, there are things that you have done or things that were done to you that have brought such shame that you're not free to move into the future God has because you're dragging the past behind you. It's like you have a rope around your neck with a 50-pound weight, and you're trying to run into the future, but you just keep stumbling and falling, and things choking you to death. And what Paul is saying is that because of the gospel, because our relationship with God is not based on our performance, because God doesn't love us based on what we've achieved, because he's always for us and never against us as followers of Jesus, that we can truly release the past and let it be past. That it's covered. It's covered by the blood of Jesus. It's covered by his death. This is why he died for you so you don't have to suffer for your past any longer. You don't have to carry the shame. You don't have to beat yourself up because he took the stripes you deserve. And because he bore it, you're free to release it and run into the future. There's others of us, though, that we've come to Jesus and God has used us in amazing ways. And you look back at your life and there's just amazing things that God has done. And you know, sometimes when that happens, we can begin to jog, thinking that we made such good time early on in this race. <laughs> I think I can just kind of jog and I'll win. And so sometimes you'll talk to someone and you'll talk about, hey, when was the time you really ex experienced God working in your life? Hey, well, when I was in college, it was amazing. I came to Christ and I was using, I was leading people to the Lord. I was growing so much. I was so hungry. I just couldn't get enough. And how long ago was that? Oh, that was 22 years ago. <laughs> well, what's happening now? It, it's sort of like we're the, spiritual version of the 35-year-old at his reunion that's still talking about the high school games he won. I remember that. We won CIF. It's so awesome. You know? It's like, dude, get a life, right? And sometimes we can do that spiritually. And we can kind of lie to ourselves that our lack of passion, our lack of growth, our lack of, it's okay because there was once a time when I was really fine. 
you should have seen me in my prime. One of the things I love about Paul is that he has not lost a step. Paul is not slowing down. Do you get a sense from him? He's been following Jesus now for 30 years. You get a sense he's more passionate about Jesus now than he's ever been in his life. Do you remember chapter one? Hey, for me to live is Christ, to die, I'm good, I'm good to go. You know, remember chapter two? Hey, if I need to die for you guys to help you grow, it's a blessing. In chapter three, yeah, forgetting what's lying behind, I'm gonna run with this race. I'm gonna win this thing, you know? And this is where we're called to be. The question is not, was God once working in your life in amazing ways? The question is, are you winning today? Are you running hard to take hold of that purpose in your life for which Jesus took hold of you? And so Paul says, this is what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. This is what it looks like to live a life worthy of the gospel. It is making your passion life to know Messiah, to experience his life-transforming power, to stand with him and for him for the sake of the world, to take whatever sufferings required to advance his name, and to run hard like an athlete for all your worth to achieve the purpose for which he chose you so long ago. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your beautiful word, how it challenges, instructs, and teaches us. Lord, I think of the psalm where it says, the unfolding of your word brings light. And Lord, today, I think we've been enlightened by the apostle. What it looks like to live the normal Christian life. You've not called us to unleash a movement of mediocre Christ followers. You've called us to unleash a movement, a passionate Christ. This is why you have come And this is our path to life. And so, Lord, we pray that you would be with us, you would meet us. We pray that if we're here today and we're honestly in a place where we feel like this is not our top priority, it's not our top passion, that we would be a place of surrender, saying, Lord, I come to you as I am, not as I should be. I come as I am, and I ask you to work in me supernaturally by the work of your Spirit and change me from the inside out. I give you permission to change my heart that you would be my top passion in life. We pray that as we worship now, as we pursue you now in worship, as we bring our tithes, our gifts, our offerings, we pray you'd use these to create a place that is unleashing a movement of truly passionate Christ followers. We pray it in your name. Amen.